You know, words are powerful. Um, and final words in somebody's life often are very powerful. Some of them are also quite humorous. Um, the composer, Jean Philip Rameau, uh, objected to a song <laughs> that was being sung by a priest at his bedside as uh, Rameau was dying. And he said, to the, he said to the priest, What the devil do you mean sing, uh, singing to me? You are out of tune. <laughs> These, that was his final words. Frank Sinatra's final words were, I'm losing it. <laughs> this one's good. Nostradamus, his final words were, Tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. Finally, he got one right. That was exactly right. When Harriet Tubman was dying in 1913, her final words were, Swing low, sweet chariot. Leonardo da Vinci, his final words, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Leonardo da Vinci. Like, well, the rest of us ought to hang up our paintbrush then. Uh, James Rogers was about to be executed and he asked if he had any last request. His final words were, bring me a bulletproof vest. Uh, Charles Gusman was a, a writer and a TV announcer. He wrote, in fact, the pilot episode of Days of Our Lives. His final words were, and now a final word from our sponsor. Groucho Marx, when he was dying, he said, this is no way to live. Alfred Hitchcock, he says, one never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. W.C. Fields, I can't tell you what his last words were. If you have the courage, Google it. Maybe not. It's actually kind of this, no, never mind. Winston Churchill, his final words were, I'm bored with it all. Joan Crawford, her housekeeper was praying for her. Crawford heard the housekeeper praying. And the first word I won't say, and the second word is, don't you dare ask God to help me. Steve Jobs, this is one of my favorites. Steve Jobs, his final words, this brilliant genius that created Apple Computer, his final words were, uh, his sister says that he opened his eyes wide and he said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. I wonder what he saw. Bach, his was wonderful. He says, don't cry for me. I go, for I go where music was born. Isn't that great? Kit Carson, his is kind of interesting. He said, he was the American frontiersman. He said, I, I wish I had time for one more bowl of chili. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Alfred Jerry says, I am dying. Please, please bring me a toothpick. Yes, but my favorite of this list, and I read through quite a few, is the blues singer Bessie Smith. She says, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. A runner-up to that is Michael Faraday, the English chemist, 
uh, somebody asked him if he if uh, he ever pondered what he would be doing, what his occupation would be in the next life, and he said, "I shall be with Christ, and that is enough." Isn't that great? You know, final words are uh, telling, aren't they? Some of these are really telling, both in the good and a bad way. We have some final words in the scriptures, too, and the book of 2 Peter is just that. 2 Peter is, are the final words of the great apostle. Turn there, if you would, to the book of 2 Peter. We know from 2 Peter that Peter knew he was about to die. And so Peter tells us in this great book the purpose of it, and we'll look at that. Peter had lived, at the the point that he wrote this, he had lived for more than three decades as an apostle of Jesus Christ, hardly the bumbling fisherman of the Gospels, what we read in First and Second Peter is a mature man who has gone through failure, who has, uh, who has learned from Christ through the years how to walk with Christ. And by God's grace and the inspiration of the Spirit, he's written down a lot of it for us. The aged apostle could have really impressed his readers with some great theology. Again, he's lived a long time. He understood things that you and I um, will never understand. But instead of writing in Second Peter basically his some great, amazing theology, Peter says, I want to basically remind you of what you already know. Peter's purpose in the letter is very clear. And let's just look at a few, just kind of get a, a sweeping look at a few selected verses. Look at chapter 1. Verse 12, Peter says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. So, he says, I am writing to remind you. Um, Look at chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets, or I should say, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will introduce destructive heresies. So you begin to see another purpose of this book is not simply to remind us of the basics, but now he begins to tell us why we need to know the basics, because if we don't know the basics of the faith, it will be very easy for someone to delude us, for false teachers to come in and to say, thus saith the Lord, when in fact he never said that. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Whoever did the chapter breaks on Second Peter did a really good job. Peter writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, remember the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember the word of God. I am stirring you up to remember it, 
to focus on it. And then finally, look down in verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, know this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. These are the final words of Peter. And he writes this book to remind us of the basics, to remind us to grow, constantly grow in the basics, not only for our own well-being and health, but also to be able to recognize error. And boy, we are living in a time of error, where, where God's word, if it's even part of the conversation, is often cast doubt upon it. Interestingly enough, the book of 2 Peter itself, perhaps because of its theme, is one that people cast doubt on. Now, this is sort of a scholarly issue, and for that reason we're not going to get into it because we're not here. We're not a bunch of scholars and we're not here for that. But I'd be, uh, um, I'd be in error, I should say, or I wouldn't be doing what I consider important to not mention the fact that most of the scholarly world, as far as New Testament scholars, believe that, or don't believe, that Peter wrote 2 Peter. Simon Peter, even right there, the first two words of the, of the book. There is a, or there was a, a um, why don't you say, a pattern, a, a, a habit, um, a custom, a manner of writing books called pseudonymity. Pseudo, we know what pseudo means, it means false, but pseudonymity in the, uh, the days of the early church was when an, a writer would take the name of somebody else and write a book uh, under their name. And m- believe it or not, many scholars believe that Second Peter was not written by Peter, but by somebody taking Peter's name. And they have a whole long list of uh, reasons why they, why they believe it's true. And it, it, it's so compelling, this list, that, again, the majority of scholars believe that, second, that Peter didn't write Second Peter. But I believe he did. And uh, I won't get into all the reasons that I believe he did, as well as most folks uh, in our circles do believe he did. But um, I wrote a paper on it, and if you've got the, uh, the patience to read it, it's uh, go to Bible.org and look up a paper called Is Second Peter Peter's? Is Second Peter Peter's? And you'll get a whole lot more information than you want on why Second Peter is Peter's. Basically, the, the, the main reason that people say that they don't believe that Peter wrote it is because it was one of the very latest books accepted into the canon of the New Testament. And um, because of its late acceptance, because the church fathers didn't quote this book, or maybe they, maybe they did, maybe they didn't as clearly as others, there was some hesitancy. And there are some other reasons why they believe that it wasn't. But uh, I, I believe it very powerfully shows that itself is. First of all, if we believe it's Scripture, and we do, and we believe that the Scripture is inerrant, word for word, and we do, then the first two words of this book solve that problem for us. Now, some, some would say, well, you know, it was just understood in that day, pseudonymity. 
You know, it's inspired. Everyone understood that someone else wrote Second Peter. But the problem is there's no other book in the New Testament that takes that mindset. And, if you, and this book doesn't just take the name of Second Peter. It purports to be Peter writing it. So it's, it's, um, it's hardly something that um, the Holy Spirit would inspire someone to take Peter's name. I mean, the book of Hebrews is anonymous. Why don't you just make this book anonymous if the Holy Spirit was going to inspire it? And if you're making it up, why add Simon to it when in First Peter it just says Peter? So if you're going to make it up, at least copy the first one. So anyway, there's a whole lot more in that paper if you want to read it. But let's just begin with the Bible saying what it says. Simon Peter, verse 1, a bondservant of the apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Right out of the chute, Jesus is held up, and Peter says it straight that it is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, the, the, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 2, that is an intimate relationship with our Lord that is the basis of, of um, the Christian life. Peter introduces himself, first of all, as a bondservant, and then as an apostle. Boy, what a humble and yet appropriate order. He doesn't come out saying, I'm, I'm just an apostle, but he begins by saying, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And he says he's writing to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours. That is, a faith that comes by the righteousness of God. Not one of works, but one that comes, verse 2, by grace. Grace and peace. And then he mentions the word in the knowledge of God and of our Savior, of our God and, and of Jesus our Lord. This is one of the great themes of this book is growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We read it in the very last couple of verses of the, of the book, and it's a theme that Peter develops all throughout this book, of focusing on the basics of the Christian life and growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And he mentions that it's a faith that comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, you've come to the place in your life where you realize that it's not, you don't, you don't come to God because you live a, a holy life. Um, because, frankly, we don't live holy lives. We, we hope that, that we live a life that honors God, but in, in the genuineness of our hearts, we know we fail. And we, more than anyone, know how deeply we fail because we know the thoughts that we carry around with us. We know the motives that are impure. We know the depth of our depravity more than anybody else. And then there's God who knows even more than that. Um, Kathy and I were talking about something this week that reminded us, uh, uh, reminded me, it wasn't just this week, it was this morning on our way to church. We're talking about the, uh, that Jesus was clothed in, in humanity, and in some sense his glory was hidden, and at the transfiguration it was made known. 
And that's really God's mercy. The same was true in the tabernacle where God's glory is hidden behind this, you know, behind the Holy of Holies because if you are in the presence of God without these shields, then you hit the dirt in a, in a, in a coil of, of shame and terror. We were reading about uh, King Uzziah. Um, the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah is in the presence of God and, and, and Isaiah's immediate response is, woe is me. When you, when you a sinner, are in the stand of God, in the, in the presence of or standing in the presence of God's holiness, you immediately realize your sin. And if not for the grace of God, if not for, in Isaiah's case, that angel coming and taking and taking away Isaiah's sin, if not in our case of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and our believing in him, then one day, the, the final words that we would have before we would stand or the final words there in presence of God would be words of terror. As opposed to the wonderful words we read of so many of these people, of their eager anticipation to be with the one who has paid for their sins. So, how is this grace and peace multiplied to us? Well, let's continue. Verse 3. Seeing, in other words, grace and peace be multiplied to you, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The power, Peter says, the power for godly living is not within us. The power for living the Christian life is the power of Christ. The Christian life is the life of Christ lived in and through the life of the Christian. The power for godly living, notice Peter says, is his divine power. It is his own glory and excellence. If there was any glory or excellence in us, we wouldn't need his provision. But he has made that provision through his power. And notice the extent of the provision. Everything needed for life and godliness. If you've got a pencil or a ballpoint pen or a highlighter or all three, underline, underscore, circle, highlight that word, everything. Everything. He has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. No exceptions. Everything we need to live the Christian life. everything we need. And the first provision is simply the power of God. The second provision is in verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the first provision for, this, for the Christian life is God's power. The second is God's promises, his magnificent, his precious and magnificent promises, as Peter says. And he's granted the, these to us. The word for granted is the word, the Greek word that refers to a costly gift. He has gifted us, you might say. He has gifted us his magnificent, his precious and magnificent promises. Because notice, 
He's, Peter writes, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is exactly what he told us in 1 Peter when he says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, the word of God, because by it you grow in respect to salvation. He's saying the exact same thing here. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, by God's promises, by God's word, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean we become God, but it means we become godly. That the, the, the attributes of God become part of us. We begin to take them on the more and more we devote ourselves to God's precious and, and magnificent promises. And notice there is sort of a this then that happening. You become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And lust, again, sometimes that word, it's sort, of like, um, it's sort of like the word gay today. It meant something totally different 50 years ago. And so when we re- read the word lust, it, it's, it's not just sexual lust. It's any kind of longing that's outside of the will of God. The corruption that is in the world by lust. And it happens at the same time. You become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the world, or or as you escape the corruption that's in the world, by lust. He has granted to us his magnificent promises. I read about kind of an interesting uh, story. The great chief of the Blackfoot Indians was named Crowfoot, and he gave permission for the Canadian uh, Pacific Railroad to build across his land at that time, and as a result, as a gift, he was given a lifetime pass on the, the railroad. And he, and he put it, he folded it, put it in a leather pouch, and put it around his neck, and he wore it all the time, but he never used it. Never rode the train. But, but he had always carried the pass with him. I read that and thought, you know, that's what we do sometimes with the Bible, isn't it, as Christians? We have been given this incredible gift, but we... We just we hang it on the wall, and and the word of God becomes decoration, rather than becomes part of us. So much so that we take it in that we es- we escape the corruption that's in the world by lust, that we become more and more like God. I love what Steve Farrar was teaching today because it dovetails right into what we're talking about here. To read the Word of God, to have a commitment to being in this book, is not a box to check. It, it's not a, it's not a uh, uh, something you do to, re- to relieve yourself of guilt. It's not something we do because we're supposed to. How many of us eat breakfast because we're supposed to? We eat because we're hungry. We eat because it tastes good. We eat because we understand if we don't eat, we'll die. We think of that down the road. Most of us eat because it tastes good. You can acquire a taste for the Word of God, so much so that if you you skip a meal, you know it. Not guilt, but you, 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 you don't spend time in the Word and you miss it. Um... I love the Bible. I read the Bible probably every day. 
uh, pretty much every day. I can't, uh, whatever. I read it all the time. <laughs> Most mornings, my light is on and I, my face is in this book because I love it. I absolutely love it. And I am committed to, this, to reading it because I've seen what it does in my life as a husband, as a father, as a man, um, as a Christian. It's changed my life, and it continues to change my life. But it's only because I'm in the Bible that that happens. And I'll be honest with you. I get a whole lot more out of my time every morning alone in this book than I ever do from hearing sermons because I'm able to be so much more personal with the Lord in this, in this time. And that can be true of all of us. And it becomes true more and more the, the more time we spend in this book. Uh, I love this book. And I hope that you have a deepening hunger for it as well and that that passion in your life will continue to grow. And if that's not something that the Lord doesn't have you at that place, I encourage you to be a daily reader of this book. Not to check a box, but because you will begin to see the benefits of it. And it will indeed impact you. It will help you take on, as Peter says, the divine nature. And it will help you escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. So how do we make the power of God within us and the promises of God within the Word of God useful in our lives? How do we use God's power and God's promises? How do we make this very practical? Peter tells us, starting in verse 5, look at this wonderful section. He says, for this very reason, meaning that you may become partakers of the divine nature, for this very reason, Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. He lists seven qualities here that are basically how we can apply God's power and God's promises in our lives. He says, for this very reason, in order to live a godly life, apply all diligence in God's precious promises. And, and reading the Bible takes diligence. Because like Steve said earlier to, in, in the previous service, if the enemy can get you out of the Bible, he will. He will do all he can. He will give you five good reasons every day why you don't have time to read the Bible. It's funny, though, that, that we don't apply that same truth to meals because we realize the importance of it. Our, our body physically tells us you must eat. Our spirit needs to do the same thing. We must eat. And if we are struggling in particular areas, that is hunger pangs for us to come to the Word of God and to allow the Word of God to do what only the Word of God can do. Applying all diligence. Why? Because there is going to be a substitute for truth, and it's called error. He's going to give us a whole chapter on this in chapter 2 when we talk about the false prophets. But right now he's just kind of setting the stage. We can't live lives that are fulfilling lives 
apart from him, apart from God, and apart from God's word. And it takes diligence. He gives us seven qualities. Let's run through these qualities here. Basically, these are simply to be added to the foundation of our faith. So added to our faith, first of all, is moral excellence. It's a term that basically describes anything that performs its function well. Um, not moral perfection, because none of us, none of us do that. This, these are goals. These are directions to head. These are not things that once you do, you fig once you fail, you figure, well, you're out, you've been voted off the island. Moral excellence, anything that performs a function that it was designed to do. A knife is designed to cut, and when it does it well, it's performing its function. A horse is designed to run, and when it does it well, it's performing its function. A Christian is to have a life of moral excellence, and when we do, we are living it well. It describes anything that is performing what it was designed to do. Second, the second quality that is to be added to moral excellence is knowledge. This isn't the same kind of knowledge that we had up in verse 2, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's a relational knowledge. The knowledge that he's speaking of here is a knowledge of content. It's facts, it's information, it's growing in the knowledge base that the Word of God, it's acquiring information. It's urging us to be lifelong students of God's Word. This takes time, but you know what else it takes? It takes money. It takes investment. I hope that you are investing in your spiritual life, that you are spending money to go to conferences, or to buy study tools, or to, uh, uh, to listen to someone, you know, to go to a conference or something that actually cost. Your spiritual life is worth your investment financially. And it's worth investing in your children and grandchildren as well. Help to help yourself and others grow in knowledge. The third quality is to be added to knowledge, is self-control. Specifically, this refers to controlling those natural desires that we have that may be a temptation to express it in an ungodly way, or being able also to distinguish between the ungodly desires that, uh, that are there, simply impulsive and dangerous desires. The next quality is perseverance. And uh, this basically means you, you keep on keeping on in times that are hard. Literally, the word refers to being able to stand up under something. If you've got something that's really heavy, you're able to just stand up under it and bear the weight of it. It's, it's the same word that's used in that verse that we know, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, where, where uh, Paul writes, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It's that, that idea of perseverance, of standing strong when the weight is bearing down on you. The fifth quality to be added to perseverance is godliness, just a simple, good, general term that reflects godly behavior. The seventh term 
is brotherly kindness. We, it's the word Philadelphia. We know that Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love, but it basically means acts of kindness that we do to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the final quality that's to be added to brotherly kindness is love. This is a love that is selfless. It's a love that, uh, that loves because it's right to do it. It's a love that loves because of the, the value of somebody, not because of what you get out of the deal. Peter says it's our responsibility to be diligent to add these qualities to life, to add these qualities to our life. The Christian life is sort of like the power steering on a car. God's power is the engine. It gets the thing moving. But our decision on a daily basis to add these qualities to our life is sort of like the steering wheel. God's power gives us the power but we decide, in, in a sense, what direction we're going to go with that. Are we going to go in the direction the Lord gives, or are we going to go in a direction that our flesh or the world wants to do? So, in a sense, Peter's shown us that the foundation is faith in Christ. He's shown us the provisions that God has given us through his power, through his promises, through the word of God. And in a sense, he's also shown us the pathway to make that happen through adding these daily qualities to our life. But now look at what this will produce if we have this commitment. If we have this commitment, verse 8, he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Jesus' half-brother James asks that question, What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no works? And James gives an illustration of a body without the spirit is dead. He, said, he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Some people take that to mean that there, that, that there is no faith. But think about the illustration. He's not saying there is no body. He's saying that the body's useless without the spirit in it. He's not saying that there's no faith. He's saying that the faith is useless if you don't live it. That's the whole point of the book of James. He's writing to Christians with the, who have the temptation of simply being hearers of the word but not doers of the word. Peter is giving the same challenge here. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Oh, I'm so glad he added that in there. And are increasing. What, so what he means is, when he says they are yours, he doesn't mean they're yours and you're living them perfectly. He says they're yours and you're continuing to get better and better and better if you're increasing in these qualities. In other words, if you're growing. Uh, it makes you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge. So the knowledge you have, you're doing something with it. You're growing. And if we lack these qualities, so if we're not increasing in them, but rather then we're going the other direction, we're decreasing in these qualities, all these things are not true of your life or they're getting worse in your life, then what has happened? Peter says, this is a person who is blind or short-sighted. 
having forgotten his purification from his former sins. The word, therefore, short-sighted is literally, we, the, the Greek word there is, we get our word myopia from it. it. And I have that. I am as myopic as the day is long. As, as soon as I take these off, it's the perfect time for you to sneak out the back. <laughs> because right now you're just a fuzzy blur. <laughs> and I kind of like it. Maybe just, just, we just keep them off. But no, the reality is, all I can see is this microphone. I can see my Bible. But beyond this right here, myopia takes over. Peter says that's, what, that's what's happening to a person who doesn't increase and grow in their Christian life. They're so focused on themselves. In fact, myopia has the, the, the idea of being so consumed or myopic with yourself that you're not looking beyond. And you have forgotten, we have forgotten our purification from our former sins. In other words, when we remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, when we have this continual thought in our minds, Christ died for me. I am going to heaven because he paid the price for my sin. When you have this constant reminder, and you haven't forgotten but you remember it. It's one of the healthy things about communion and the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's why Jesus said to do the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me, as a, as a remember, remembrance of my blood that was spilled, of my, my body that was broken. We do it to remember so we don't forget. Because the one who has forgotten is not going to commit themselves to growing in the Christian life. We're just, they're just going to kind of cruise along. But if we remember on a regular, if not daily basis, the cross of Jesus Christ in our lives, then our commitment and our passion is to grow in these areas. Not to go back, but to go forward. And to keep the glasses on and to not take them off. A life of unfaithfulness is a life of ingratitude of what Jesus has done. We live in short-sighted lives. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Now, the way that's written could sound a little concerning. Um, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. He's not saying make certain you're saved. That's not the context because from the very first verse, he writes that he has written to those who have received the same kind of faith. He's writing to Christians. So he's not saying, he's not saying make sure that you are uh, saved. What he is saying is, keep this in context. He says, be diligent. He says, be all the more diligent to, be, to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. Look back at verse 5. He says a similar thing. For this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, etc., etc., etc. Then verse 10, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. In other words, the diligence comes in a context of, of adding to your faith uh, all these qualities. Basically, it's the same idea of what when Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean to work it out in the sense of earning it, but work it out in, other, in the sense of living it out. 
be diligent to make certain or to, to make certain you are living it. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The idea being you won't go back. You won't decrease in your Christian life. You'll go forward in your Christian life. The product of diligence and biblical qualities, Peter says, is that potentially we will never stumble. It's kind of like riding a bike. Um, there's never a point that you, you can stop pedaling. I mean, if you're going down a hill, but let's say all things level, you've got to keep pedaling for a bike to work. It's that way with the Christian life. There's never a point where you coast. You're always pedaling. You're always being diligent. Be diligent, Peter has told us a couple of times, to make certain about your calling and choosing you. Live that Christian life. Because as long as you practice these things, you're going to go forward, not backward. You're not going to stumble. And then look at verse 11 as our final verse. For he says, For in this way, in what way? That is, the moving forward, being faithful, the growing in the knowledge, all these things increasing, not going backwards. In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. The word supplied here is the same word as in verse 5. Verse 5 where it says, supply moral excellence. Just as you supply qualities to your faith, Peter says God will supply you the rewards of that in an abundant welcome home when you get to heaven. In other words, you will receive rewards for the life that you live. And it's all in a context of grace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter says. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan of yesteryear, in his 20s wrote a series of resolutions that were uh, actually pretty convicting. Somebody as young would be as thoughtful and as resolved as he was. But listen to one. And I love this one because it relates so well to my life and probably will to yours too. Edwards wrote, Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. Isn't that a great perspective? I don't care how many times I blow it. I'm going to keep pressing on in the Christian life. That's what he means. That's what Peter's challenging us to do here. Be diligent. And if you blow it, the cross. Remember the cross and be diligent. Keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. Let your passion be for the word of God and let his precious promises in your daily life stir you up and encourage you to apply all these things to your faith. Because when you do, you're growing in the right direction. You're not moving backwards. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. Great reminder. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the Apostle Peter once again, as we've left First Peter and head into his final words. His final words become great words for us to live by as he died with a passion to remind us of the basics, may we live with a passion to live the basics. That is, to make the Word of God 
our essential meal every day, not in a sense of um, Phariseeism, to do it and to feel good because we've done it, but because it feeds our soul. And in so doing, Lord, we pray that, that when we read the Bible, and that you would speak to us personally, that you would, as Peter's written here, allow us to tap into the divine power to live a life like he's described here, that we may honor you and that we may also have a great expectation of the abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.